last day of last Sunday of 2012, I'd like to invite you to uh, focus your attention on uh, living a more gospel-centric life. You know, we've uh, spent the whole year thinking about what it means to live a gospel-centric life. And uh, here at Trinity, of course, uh, our big dream is to be a growing church of God-first people. We'd love to get to the point where uh, in each of our lives, in every area of our life, we could ask the very simple question, you know, who's first? Who's first in all these different areas of our life? To simply look at any area of our life and say, you know, who's first here? If you look at your speech and how you use your tongue, and just ask the question, you know, who's first? Do I consider God before I speak? Do I use my tongue in ways that bring honor and glory to him? Who's first in the use of my tongue? If I make a choice, a moral decision, who's first in the moral decisions that I make? Entertainment. When I turn to entertainment, is God first? Do I consider, would this be something that he would be pleased with? Is this legitimate entertainment for a God-first person? This, you kind of get the idea, like in every area, in our relationships, in all of our relationships with people. I mean, God comes and says things like, you know, love your enemies. And so you ask yourself, you know, who's first in the way that I relate to people? It's God first. Uh, when God comes and says, you know, love your neighbor and, and so on. My, my thought life and uh, what I allow myself, what I allow my mind to meditate on and to think about and so forth. It's God first. To so take any area and be able to get to the place where we can say, honestly, you know what? In any area of my life, God is my first consideration. Everything I know about him, everything that he's done for me, everything that uh, he's revealed about himself to me, and I apply it to all those different areas in, in my life. Because here's the deal. Nobody can have two firsts. Nobody can have two firsts in their life. Either God is first or he's not, right? And it was God at the very beginning, way back in the Old Testament, when he gave the Ten Commandments, said, look, this is the first commandment. Don't have any other small g gods before me. Live a God-first life. And uh, the Bible goes on to explain that all those little small g gods are kind of idols. They're things that we make up that we put in front of God and that become more important to us. And God says, look, the very first commandment, right? Don't have any of those small g gods come before your big g god. Live a God-first life. Jesus, when he was here, he said, look, seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and then all the rest of life will be added to you. And most of us, you know, when we get started in life, we kind of do the opposite. We say, no, first I'm going to get everything squared away in life, and then maybe if I have room at the end, I'll serve God. It's a big mistake. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so our real goal at Trinity has been, you know, to be a growing community of God-first people, people who are in the process of becoming increasingly uh, God-first. And of course, uh, you know, when we all start out in life, we all start out me first. I mean, that's how we all start out. Anybody who's had kids understands that kids start out as me first people, right? Especially two-year-olds, me first kind of people. And uh, we need to be converted. We need to be transformed. We need to be remade. We need to be restored to God first people the way God created us. And so I'd like to uh, focus on Colossians chapter one. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, page 1165 in the uh, Bibles there in the seats. 
um, Colossians chapter 1, because in Colossians chapter 1, we're reminded that it's God who made us. And he made us through Jesus. And uh, not only that he made us, but the Bible says that he made us for himself. Like if you ask, why do I exist? Well, God would say, well, I made you for myself. I have a plan for your life. I have a reason for you being here. I love you. And uh, I made you for myself. So in Colossians chapter 1, if you look at like verse um, 16, it says, For by him all things were created. God created all things, things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him, and here's the line, and for him. All things, including us, were created by him and created for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might come to have what? Supremacy. First place. So that in everything he might have supremacy. So that we might live a God-first life in response to this God who created us and who loves us and who redeemed us and, and gave us this great salvation, that he might come to have uh, first place. And so you just might ask the question, you know, is God really in first place in my life? Do I care about what God thinks more than I care about anything or anybody else, including myself? Am I more interested to know how God feels and how God thinks and what God says than even myself, let alone somebody else? Is God really first? Now, at the heart of any God-first life is what the Bible calls the gospel, good news. Uh, the gospel is God's good news to us. And I, you know, I, I think this is a great distinction. Religion is always about good advice. Christianity is about good news. Religion is always about good advice. This is what you need to do better. God's news is this is what I have done for you. Now, don't get me wrong, don't misunderstand. The Bible is full of good advice. It's just that no human being has ever been able to live up to it. That's why we need some good news from God. Because if you ever try to live by God's good advice, you will discover that you can't. And if God doesn't do something, if God doesn't have some good news for us, we're doomed. And so the good news is, is the, the, the good advice drives us to the good news. The good advice reminds us that nobody can live like that because we were made to be like God and we're fallen. And we have not just, you know, sin isn't just a, a behavior problem. It's, a, it's, a, it's in our nature. Uh, we start out as me first people and we, we need to be converted. And so um, <clears throat> good advice uh, leads us to the good news. If all we needed was good advice, Jesus would have never had to come. If God could have just given us some good advice and told us how to live and we could do it, There'd be no need for Jesus. There'd be no need for a Savior. There'd be no need for salvation. It would all be on us. But nobody can do that. And so um, God has good news for us. He sent uh, Jesus to come to die in our place. And so in any quest toward a God-first life, the place to start is the gospel. The good news that God has provided for us, this salvation from ourselves, from his wrath, and so forth. The gospel, however, is not just the entry point, it's also, the Bible says, the power of God to live a Christian life. Uh, Romans, you remember in Romans 1.16, it says that the, the gospel is the power of God. 
And what happens is sometimes we start in the gospel and we drift back to this kind of self-effort and there's no power in our lives. There's no change. We go year and year and year and year and we stay the same because the power to change is in the gospel. The power to really live the life that God uh, sent Jesus to die for and to give us is in the gospel. And, and Romans 1.16 says the power of God for salvation with, for everyone who believes is in the gospel. And the gospel is good news. It's, it's like a seed. The gospel is good news that's um, uh, like a seed that gets planted in our hearts. You might remember when Jesus first came, you know, um, when he was here, he, he loved to tell stories to uh, illustrate truth and to give people truth. And one of the things, one of the first stories that Jesus told us about a farmer, and he said, you know, the good news, the word of God, the, the good news of God is like a farmer sowing seed. And uh, a farmer goes around, sows seed in his field, and falls, falls on four different kinds of soil. Remember this story? It's an, I'm reading from Matthew 13. It says, a farmer goes out to sow his seed, and uh, as he's scattering seed, some falls along the path, and the birds come and eat it up. Some falls on rocky soil, and it doesn't have much soil. It springs up quickly, but because the soil is shallow, when the sun comes up, the plants get scorched. They wither because they have no roots. Other seed falls among the thorns, which grew up and choked out the plants, and yet other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160, 30 times what was sown. Listen then to what the parable means, Jesus says. When anybody hears the message about the gospel, about the kingdom of God, and does not get it, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. Some people you can... Explain the gospel, the good news, that God's got good news for you until you're blue in the face. They just don't get it. It's just like hit it, seed hitting on, on the pathway on hard ground. They don't want to understand it. And, uh, and then second, it says, um, the one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is that person who hears the word, hears the gospel, and at once receives it with joy. That's the best news I ever heard. That is fabulous. You mean to tell me that I could be me and know who I am and God would love me if I just put my faith in Jesus Christ? That's super exciting, right? But since he doesn't have any roots, he lasts only a short time. Doesn't really ferret that out. Doesn't really go after that. Doesn't really, you know, sink roots down to find out what God, what else God has to say and so on. And then uh, the third kind of seed, um, you know, um, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. That's the rocky one. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the anxiety, the stress, the way things go wrong in this life, the, the, all the chores, all the busyness of life. You know, uh, this guy, he says, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Work first, money first, then God. Not God first, you know. This is the kind of person uh, that falls in the uh, uh, soil that has the thorns in it. And he says, the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of life choke out the gospel of God. And it becomes unproductive. It's a seed that can't reproduce itself because it gets choked out by all the anxiety and stress and worrying about life and money and all the rest of it. But the one who received the seed that falls on the good soil is the man who hears the gospel and understands it embraces it, works at massaging it until I get it and grab a hold of it and understand it. And that person produces a crop. It's fruitful. The gospel bears fruit in their life. And um, they yield 160, 30 times what was sown. 
Jesus said, this is what, you ever see on TV, they advertise this grass seed that comes, and it's a seed, but then it's wrapped with moisture, and it's wrapped with fertilizer, and it's like, it, you can put it on a rock, and it grows. It doesn't last, but it'll grow. The gospel is like a seed that just, it, it comes supercharged. And if it gets into good soil, it will reproduce itself. And uh, it will bear fruit, and so on. And so, it's important for us to understand the nature of this um, good news. And so, you know, um, in Colossians now, um, when Paul writes to, to these people in Colossae, these Christians, um, he says in verse 22 and 23, uh, well, verse 21, let's start in verse 21. Uh, when you're a me first person, when you start out in life, you're a me first person. Here's your, here's your deal. Uh, without the gospel, without God's salvation, this is you. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. If you're a me first person, here's your deal, all right? You're alienated from God. You're on your own. You're doing your own thing. You're messed up in your mind, right? Uh, Alienated from God. You're an enemy in your mind of God. You're an enemy of God. That's a bad place to be. You're an enemy of God. And you have evil behavior. Because you don't have the God in you that can produce the righteousness. You don't have the seed of the gospel that produces this fruit of righteousness in your life. All you can do is the wrong thing. It's really a pretty bad place to be. Okay? And so um, if you're a me first person, this and this is where we all start out. But when you become a believer and when the gospel gets into your heart, when Christmas gets into your soul, as we've been saying, look what happens. The next verse, 22. Um, We read this. But now... God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from any accusation. You go from being alienated and being hostile in your mind and being full of bad behavior to being holy, to being free from any accusation. Nobody can bring a charge against you that can stick free from accusation, and without a blemish. Without a blemish. Now, most Christians, they say, well, you know, I'm a little bit better when I became a Christian, when I trusted Christ, but I still got a lot of blemishes. Now, read the book. What does it say? When you trust Christ, the blemishes go. Holiness comes. Free from accusation. The enemy, Satan, right, is always bringing accusations against us. You read the book of Job. Always bring in the accusations. None of them stick when you're washed by the blood of Christ. And uh, I think this is such a good, such good news. I mean, if, if this isn't good news, there is no good news, right? If you can go from being alienated from God to being without a blemish in his eyes. If you can go from bad behavior to being free from anybody being able to bring an accusation that will stick against you. I mean, it's really good news. This is the good news of the gospel. And uh, when you put your faith in Jesus, who died in your place, the physical body of Jesus, Paul writes here, taking the punishment for us, for all of our bad behavior, all of our wrong thoughts, God then knows you as holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. All God asks you to do is believe it. And if you believe it, it'll change your life. You see, we know ourselves, right? We know ourselves as not as good 
as we think we are. We know ourselves that we're not that good. But God knows us through Christ as holy, without blemish, and free from any accusation. Now here's the question. Do you believe yourself or do you believe God? Because if you were to choose to believe God, which is to believe the gospel, to believe the good news, it would change your life. That's where the power to change your life is located, in the gospel. Most people have a hard time believing that truth. But that's where the power is. When I choose to believe um, what God is saying, rather than what I think, there's a power that comes into my life that creates a freedom to begin to live a more gospel-centric life. And, uh, and, and that's why I think Paul says the next verse. He says, you know, um, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation, if, here's the deal, if you continue in your faith established and firm. If you continue. If you continue in your faith. If you don't slip away from believing in the gospel and start trying to produce your own righteousness... There'll be a power that comes into your life. It's called gospel-centric living. And uh, I think, you know, when you believe God more than you believe yourself, which is to say when you become a God-first person, when you believe God more than you believe yourself, God-first, then you begin to see yourself as God sees you. You begin to say, you know what? I am holy. Holy means to be set apart. means to be set apart for God's purposes. That's what holy means. I am holy. I am free from accusation. Go ahead and try to bring a charge against me. It's not that I'm not guilty. It's that I've been forgiven. It's that I've been cleansed. There's a freedom that comes into our life with the truth. I am, you know, uh, without blemish in God's eyes. If you start to believe that about yourself, you will start to act that way. On the basis of what God has revealed about himself. And we start to change. And that's the power of the gospel. The, the power of God's good news. The truth does, in fact, set us free. If we continue, and notice what it says, established. In other words, if that really becomes our identity. You remember at the end of Romans, we saw the very last couple of verses of Romans. The Apostle Paul said, Now unto him who is able to establish you in the gospel to create an, a new identity, to change you from a me-first person to a God-first person, to establish you. To, to be established is to be immovable. To be established is to be planted. Right? To be established is to, you know, uh, be secure. And uh, when, when this gospel actually creates this identity in you, um, it changes everything. If you were to ask yourself, what would I be without the gospel? What would I be without God's salvation? I'll tell you what you'd be. You'd be verse 21. You'd be alienated from God. Right? You'd be uh, messed up in your mind. You'd be an enemy of God. You would hate him. You would stay away from him. You'd try to keep him as far away as you could from your life. And uh, you would be full of evil behavior. And you would wonder why your life's not working out real, real well. Because it's the power of the gospel that enables us to live the life that God created us for. And so, uh, no wonder the Bible says this. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Isaiah 7, 9. If you don't stand firm, if you're, if you're not established, if, if the gospel comes and goes and it's not your core identity, if you don't live a gospel-centric life, if you don't stand firm in your faith and what God's telling you, you won't stand at all. 
And you know, we have a lot of people who don't stand at all. But if you believe the gospel, it will change your identity. And once you believe who you are in Christ, you will start to live who you are. And uh, I think, you know, we, we talked about this at the very beginning, but the truth is, you know, you start out as a me first person, right? You start going along in life and things happen and stuff. And eventually you decide that, you know, there is a God and I'm not worthy of him, but he has put his son on the cross and bridged the gap between where God is and where I am. And the cross enables me to be reconciled to God. And if I keep walking, I keep walking, I discover that God is actually way better than I ever thought. God is way more holy than I ever thought. And if I keep walking and I keep listening to what the Bible says, and so I find out that I am way more sinful than I ever thought. Because, you know, when I'm walking along back here, I'm just sort of comparing myself to other people. I'm a pretty good guy compared to you. But when I get walking like this and God just gets better and better and he says, I made you to be like me. And I'm like, my goodness, I am further and further away from you. And this gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger as you go along in your life. And if you walk in the gospel, if you live a gospel-centric life, the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because the gospel is like your salvation. And it's huge. And at the end, on the last day of your life, the gospel is everything because it reconciles you to God. And you begin to, when you live a gospel-centric life, the cross gets more and more significant. It gets better and better. You know, God's sacrifice and God's salvation becomes more and more precious, more and more valuable, more and more significant the longer you go. Now, if you don't do that, if you don't live a gospel-centric life, Basically, what happens is you go along a little bit and you find out that God is really this great, awesome God, and you start to have to pretend. A lot of Christians, you know, instead of going and glorying in the gospel, they start pretending they're better than they really are. Wow, I realize God is so holy and God wants me to be like him, and God has all these ideas about what I'm supposed to be like, so I know I'm not like that, but I can pretend. And I start living this life of pretending. It's like the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus couldn't get along with the Pharisees because they, they became legalistic. They said, all right, this is what God wants, you know, love your enemies. Okay, let's make 10 rules about how to love enemies. All right, well, I'll give them some money and I'll send them a card for their birthday and I'll do, and I check off all those things. And God says, no, it's your heart. It's your heart, you know. And, 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 and if, if you get your focus off the gospel, off the cross, and you just look at God, you begin to have to pretend to be better than you are. If you get your focus off the cross and off the gospel and you're just looking at yourself and you're realizing that you're not half as good as you thought you were. Like just come to church and get in a small church and other people will help you to discover how bad you really are. Isn't that true? You get around Christians and eventually you say, you know, I can't stand going to that group anymore because, you know, this guy points out every time I do something wrong, this guy is looking at me funny. Well, it's because you're wrong. That's the point of the group, is to help us focus on the gospel. And so, and so what happens if you, don't, you know, if you don't focus on the gospel and you're just looking at yourself, then you know what you do to yourself? You start to perform. You start to say, i got to get better. Because you've you got to lift yourself up. You've got you to get out of that bad habit. So, but you've got your focus off the cross and off the gospel where the power is to actually change. 
And so we start to try to perform. And we have some Christians who are trying so hard to do the right thing, and finally they just get to the point where they realize, you know what, I can't do it. So you know what, the heck with it. And they just give it up, and they live a licentious life. They say, you know, I tried that routine. No, you never tried that routine because the truth is the gospel that needs to be centered, it always it, it, it expands to, you know, bridge a bigger and bigger gap. The more you get to know God and the more you get to know yourself. And I don't think you can do one without the other. I don't think you can get to know God without getting to also to know yourself. The closer you come to the light of God, the more you realize the darkness in your own life, Right? That's just the way it works. You can't know God without knowing yourself. And that's why the gospel is such a beautiful thing. It's such good news because it keeps bridging a bigger and bigger gap. And it becomes so valuable, so precious that we begin to build our whole identity around it. In the Old Testament, God, you know, he says it like this in Isaiah um, 55. You remember these words? My thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't think like you think. You think like this. I think like this. My ways, God says, the way I do things is not the way you do things. Right? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Jeremiah sort of follows this with, uh, he says in um, Jeremiah chapter 17, he says, um, This is what the Lord says. Cursed is anybody who trusts in man, including yourself. Cursed by God is anybody who trusts in themselves. Okay, who depends on flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. You can't fix your own heart. You can't do it. Only God can do that. And he does it through the gospel. You cannot change your own heart. And, uh, but God can. And uh, so the heart is deceitful above everything else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct and according to what his deeds deserve. So here's God looking at the heart all the time. Focused on the heart. And, uh, and that's why he sends us good news. Um, if we're pretending that we're better than we are, or uh, if we're performing to try and live up to something in our own strength, we're just going to get frustrated and uh, really be annoyed. <laughs> so I say, look, don't ever underestimate the vitality of that gospel truth that seed thought of the gospel that God plants in your heart. Don't ever underestimate the vitality of the gospel. Gospel Gospel-centric believers have a deep respect for God and what he reveals about himself, but we all also realize that we could never do all that God is asking us to do, but Jesus did it for us. And so we attach ourselves to the person of Christ uh, by faith. And I'm free to know God as he is, and I'm free to know myself as I really am. And I would tell you that every single piece of scripture, every chunk of scripture, if you read it and just ask these two questions, uh, will reveal what God is like and what you're like. Just ask any passage of scripture and say, you know, what does this passage teach me about the nature of God? 
What does this passage in the Bible tell me God is really like? And then the second question, just ask, you know, what does this teach me about my nature, the nature of man? And you will discover, you will learn so much just asking those two questions of any passage of Scripture, and and you will discover that God's nature and your nature are opposites. And that's what creates this gap between us and God, and that's why there's such good news that God has bridged the gap in the person of Christ and that we get to live this gospel-centric life. And so the gospel is like this reproductive seed that gets into your heart. And uh, when the gospel gets into your heart, you'll know it because two things will happen according to this passage. Um, Notice, if you will, in Colossians chapter 1, there's two things that happen when, um, when the gospel really does get inside of your heart. Uh, Verse uh, 5 and 6 says this, um, The gospel that has come to you all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and spreading. If the gospel gets into your heart and your heart is good soil, and you embrace and you understand and you allow God to uh, implant this seed, two things will happen. Fruit will come. Fruit will come. And the gospel will spread bearing fruit and growing, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. Uh, The gospel is like this reproductive seed. And uh, this seed, when you believe it, bears fruit. And uh, it will have an an inward and an outward effect on your life. It'll have an inward effect. The influence of the gospel, in fact, is the mark of its authenticity. How do you know the gospel is really true? Well, it changes people's lives. If the gospel is believed and embraced, your life will change. And the way the Bible talks about that is uh, fruit. Uh, It'll bear fruit. So the gospel, the spirit of the gospel, produces fruit in us. When we live gospel-centric lives, the fruit comes. And uh, there are a number of different kinds of fruits that are mentioned in the Bible. Um, There's the fruit of holiness, the Bible talks about. And it's the fruit of knowing that uh, your life has been set apart for God's purposes, holiness. It's the fruit of holiness. It's, it's having meaning in your life. It's having significance in your life. It's having, you know, a purpose to your life. There's the fruit of righteousness, uh, the fruit of being able to make right choices. Uh, there is right and wrong. There is good and bad. Um, there are things that make your life work right according to the way God designed it, and there are things that will mess up your life. And so righteousness, right choices, trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Again, God first. A God-first life, but the gospel will bear that kind of fruit. Uh, Love. When you are loved by God and you realize it's totally undeserved, you know why God loves you? Because that's the way he is, not because of the way we are. It's the way he is. And when you understand the nature of God's love, you treat other people differently. You change. And so the way you interact with other people changes. And it's not dependent on them. You've got this love coming from God, this gospel-centric, created, supernatural love that enables you to love different than the way most people think about love. In fact, I think we have an example of that here in Colossians, you know, and just in uh, the first couple of verses, verse 3, Paul writes to this church and he says, you know, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. I always love that when Paul says, I'm so thankful for the church. I always thank God the Father of Jesus Christ for you, for, your, for the people, right? And uh, why? Well, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and the love 
that spring from hope that's stored up for you in heaven. Interesting the way Paul writes that. Faith, hope, and love are almost always together in the Bible. Almost every New Testament book talks about these three. I call them the non-negotiable absolutes of the Christian life. If you think you're a believer and faith, hope, and love is not showing up in your life, you need to go back and check it out. Because these are the non-negotiables. And if, if you embrace the gospel, these things will show up in your life. Your faith will develop. Your hope in an eternity will develop. And love will develop. Faith, hope, and love. They're like, the, they're like the fruit. If the gospel gets in your heart and produces fruit, these are three of the fruits that always are basic. They come and there's other fruits, but these are basic. And you notice what Paul says here. He says that your faith and your love grow out of your hope. That's why I love to talk about Christ's return and about eternity and, and what God has promised us is going to be in the future. Because once you embrace that with all your heart, out of that, there's a freedom then to, to, to trust God on other things. You know, there's nothing you can do about your future. You're totally dependent on God for hope. I mean, you can't, you can't control that. You can't do anything to contribute to it. You can't control it. What's going to happen to you after you die is based entirely on a promise of God. And hope in the Bible, when it talks about hope, it's not wishful thinking. It's a deep conviction that God is telling you the truth. And because of it, there's a force that comes up in your life. There's a, a freedom that comes up in your life as a result of the hope that we have in eternity based on the grace, the, the undeserved favor of God in Jesus Christ, part of our salvation, part of the gospel. And out of that, there's a freedom then to love more and to believe more uh, out of this great hope that God has given us. It's a confident expectation, and out of it grows love and, and faith and so forth. You know, um, and so I, I always ask the question, would the people who know you the best say that you're a person full of hope, full of faith, and full of love? Are you a faith-driven, hopeful, loving person? Because that's the fruit of the gospel. If the gospel gets in your heart and begins to produce fruit, that's what it'll do. You might remember Jesus when he was here in John chapter 15. <clears throat> he talked about this um, the same kind of way. Um, Remember when he said, you know, I, I, I'm, the vine, I'm the vine, you're the branches? Remember what he said? And in John chapter 15, you know, I, I always like this passage of Scripture. In John chapter 15 and uh, uh, verse 8, here's what Jesus said. This is to my Father's glory. This is what turns God on. This is what God wants from me. Right? This is to my Father's glory. Everybody would say, oh, my job in life is to glorify God. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's what Jesus said. This is what brings my Father glory, that you bear much fruit. That this gospel that's pregnant with life would get in the good soil of your heart and reproduce fruit. And the more fruit, the more my Father is excited because he paid a huge price for this seed of the gospel to get planted into your heart. See? And so the first thing Jesus says, he says, this is what really glorifies my Father, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Well, how do you bear much fruit? How do you do that? Well, Jesus said this. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can't do squat. You can't get into a performance mode. You can't get into a pretending mode and bring glory to God. We bring glory to God by bearing fruit, but the secret to bearing fruit is staying attached to the person of Jesus Christ. 
That's where the gospel comes from. Every time I think about this verse, I think about this uh, story about this guy who um, he, he pulled up on a Harley motorcycle to a red light, stopped at a red light, right? And uh, this big, burly guy, he's got a beautiful bike, like a bazillion horsepower, 500 horsepower, water-cooled, Harley-Davidson, loud, all decked out in chrome, painted black. The guy is dressed in, you know, all leathers, got leather gloves, got this big helmet on. You push a button, the sunglasses come down. You push a button, the, you know, the uh, Bluetooth comes on. You push another button, the shield goes down. I mean, this guy is, and he's got a big beard and everything. He's just, he's got ape hanger, you know, uh, handlebars like this, Right. And he's just sitting there at a red light, okay? You got the picture? And all of a sudden, this 80-year-old guy comes up on a scooter, a Vesper. You know those Vesper scooters? It's painted like powder blue, right? This guy, guy comes up. He's got this little beanie of a helmet on and so forth. And he pulls up next to the, next to the Harley, and he, he's looking, and he's looking. And he can't see too well, so he's looking kind of close. He looks at this guy. And he says to the guy, would you mind if I could just look at your motorcycle? And the guy's like, no, go ahead. So this guy's got to get real close. He's looking at the chrome. He's looking at the front wheel. He's looking at the paint job. He's looking at the exhaust system. And he's, he's just marveled by it. And finally, he looks up to the guy. He says, I bet this thing is really fast, isn't it? And the guy, you know, guy says to himself, he says, I'm going to show you as soon as this light turns green, right? And so this guy is looking down here like this, and all of a sudden the light turns green, and that motorcycle is out of there like a shot, right? Boom, gone. And uh, this guy is like laughing, you know, he's driving down the street, and he looks in his mirror to see where the Vesper is, right? And he sees this dot way back there, you know? And he thinks, oh, that must be him. He's probably, he isn't even getting going yet, right? And, and all of a sudden, you know, this dot starts getting bigger and bigger in his mirror, right? And he sees this thing coming up on the side of him, and all of a sudden, the thing goes flying by him. And uh, all of a sudden, he's way out in front, and he becomes like a, just a little dot out there. He's not sure what it was. And uh, next thing you know, he's driving down the road, and all of a sudden, this thing is coming back at him. There's this dot, right? And this thing is coming, 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 coming. And all of a sudden, he sees it, and boom, it goes right by him on the other side. He looks in the mirror and he sees, you know, way back there is a dot again. All of a sudden, the dot starts getting bigger, 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 bigger. Bam! Slams right into the back of his Harley. All right? So here's this powder blue Vesper in 100 pieces all over the street. Here's this 80-year-old guy laying in the street. He's bloody. He's all banged up and everything. And then the, the big guy, he's like, you know, oh, my goodness, that was that guy. And he runs over to him, you know, and he says, hey, are you all right? And uh, can I do anything for you? The guy says, well, I'm hurting. He says, but could you just unhook my suspenders from your handlebars? (laughs) (laughs) Who you're hooked to in life (laughs) makes a difference. And so Jesus says, listen, all right? My Father is glorified when you bear a lot of fruit. You will bear fruit if you stay hooked to Jesus. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, if by faith you attach yourself to the person of Jesus Christ, he will pull you through life. You will have momentum. That's the power of the gospel. Okay, so how do you stay hooked to Jesus? 
If that's true, if I can bear much fruit, it brings God glory. And the key to the secret to bearing fruit is to stay attached to the person of Jesus Christ. How do I do that? Well, look at verse 10. If you obey my commands, you will remain in me. Obedience. Bear much fruit by staying attached to Jesus. How do you stay attached to Jesus? What's the secret to that? Obedience. The more you find out about what God is really like and that he designed you to be like him, the more you are obedient, the more fruit will bear in your life. Well, what's the secret to being obedient? How can you become more obedient? Well, I'm glad you asked. Listen to this. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know what will cause you to be obedient? Love. Love is the secret to obedience. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll obey me. If you love me, you ever say that to your kids? If you love me, you would listen to me. You would trust me. You would know that I have better plans for you than you have for yourself. Right? What's the secret to love? Well, the secret to loving Jesus is knowing the gospel. Listen to this. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. The more you know, the more you will love Jesus. The more you love Jesus, the more you will obey. The more you obey, the more you will stay attached to Jesus. And the more attached you stay, the more fruit will bear in your life, the more glory you'll bring to God. It starts with knowing, and then loving, and then obeying. And that's the way Jesus explained the way this whole relationship with God works. And so I, I say to you this morning, you know, um, when the gospel takes root, when the gospel is the center of our being, when it's our identity, when we're established in the gospel, when we live a gospel-centric life, God will cause fruit to come in our life. You, you know, you can't produce fruit. You ever take a tomato and say, you know, this sucker doesn't have any tomatoes on it, and I want a tomato for supper tonight. I think I'm going to squeeze a tomato out of a branch. Just give it a squeeze and see if you can get a tomato to come out on the other end. You can't do that. Right? You can't. You can't produce fruit. God produces fruit. All you can do is make sure the plant is watered and weeded and fertilized and has sunshine. All you can do is to create the conditions. You know what the condition is for a gospel-centric life? Faith. Belief. One time a group of people came to Jesus, John chapter 6, and they said, what do we have to do to do the work of God? And this is what Jesus said. Um, John chapter 6, I'm going to show you a verse, I don't know if I can find it. John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. They asked Jesus, what do we have to do to do the work God requires? Jesus said, the work of God is this. To believe in the one whom he sent. You know what the work of God, you know what creates the conditions for God to bring the fruit in a gospel-centric life? Faith. Faith in that cross. Faith in that person. Faith in God's son, the savior of the world. And the more that that faith is there, the more fruit will come on our lives. If we believe the gospel, faith, hope, and love begins to show up in our life. And so the first thing Paul says, you know, that's going to happen if you really live a gospel-centric life is fruit is going to show up in your life. Love, joy, peace, righteousness. A lot of fruit begins to develop in your life. 
The second thing Paul says is that the gospel will grow. It will spread. It will uh, multiply. You will find a way to spread this news. You know, bad news travels quickly. Isn't that right? Because people believe bad news. That tragic event in Newtown was around the world in a shot. Around the world. Like that. Good news doesn't travel quite so fast. Because good news is harder for people to believe. And uh, people need time to check it out and so forth. Bad news travels quickly, but good news meets with skepticism oftentimes because it's counterintuitive. Good news comes from God. It came with Jesus. It's the angels who said, you know, I bring you good news of great joy. And the good news will keep growing when people live gospel-centric lives because they can't help but talk about it in the context of everything else that's going on in the world. They know that that's the answer. This is God's solution to our dilemma. This is God's answer to all the things that upset us in life. And uh, it's all of God. And we grow in our understanding of God's grace. You know what Paul says there? And He says, it will grow just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace. This good news, this gospel doesn't come because I try harder, because I become a better person. It becomes better because God is a greater person. It's good news. It's the news of God. It's God's good news. And it's all of God. It's all of grace. And Paul says it will grow when you understand this is all a gift. You don't have to go around telling people they have to be better people. You don't have to go around getting people from down here and tell them you got to get up here to meet God. What you got to do is say, you know, God came down through the cross to meet you where you're at. And the good news begins to spread. God does accept you. God will embrace you. God does love you. God wants you to be with him in eternity and so on and so forth. And if you embrace this good news, you will talk about it. It grows when we understand. Grace is God's undeserved favor. God's riches at Christ's expense. And when you understand it, you want to respond. You want to love God back, you know, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so the Apostle Paul prays for these people, and we'll close with this, but you'll notice um, in verse 10, he says, We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he, Jesus, has rescued you from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ah, gospel-centric. To be able to establish our identity on the basis of the gospel. Martin uh, Luther, I'll close with this. Martin Luther um, said that when you embrace the gospel, you, uh, you, you get a passive righteousness. Righteousness shows up in your life. The fruit of righteousness shows up in your life. It's a passive righteousness. It's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 3. Uh, What God offers us in the gospel is a passive righteousness because we don't work for it. It comes as a result of believing Christ and wanting to know everything he has to say and wanting to find out what God has to say in the scriptures. 
It doesn't come from working at it. It's somewhat of a mystery because if you don't believe the gospel, it's hard for a person to understand how this righteousness shows up in your life. It's not our job to go around and make people righteous. It's our job to go around and share with people the good news of the gospel, that who Jesus is and what he did, and invite people to establish their life in gospel-centric living. So I just challenge you as we uh, approach a new year, and uh, we've spent a whole year talking about what the gospel really is and what God has done for us. And as you think about a new year, how can you believe Jesus a little bit deeper, a little bit wider, you know, uh, a little bit more future, uh, and embrace this gospel-centric identity that God has given us in Christ in order that fruit, more fruit, might come into our life, that God would be glorified, and that the gospel would spread. We are living in a community of people who desperately need what we have. And to spread that good news uh, in order that others might embrace the God that we've come here to worship today is what we ought to be doing in 2013. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful that what you have for us is good news. There are so many religions that have good advice. And yet, nobody can live up. I mean, just we look at the world, we listen to the news, we see kind of how people live and what people do and, and uh, compare it to how you made us and what you intended for us and what you plan for us in the future. And so I thank you, Father, for the good news and for the power of the good news that if we would dare to believe that in your eyes we are holy, that we are free from accusation, and that we are without blemish, and if we were to begin to believe that, we would begin to act that, and we begin to be so thankful for Jesus Christ and for his sacrifice on the cross that created this new identity for us, that we would establish ourselves and live gospel-centric lives. Help us, I pray, to appreciate more what you have accomplished and help us to embrace it with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.